morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to kind of mix it up a little bit. We'll go to Daniel chapter 3 in just a little bit, but I want to start in 1 Peter this morning. I'm going to finish up this series on stand preposition, and we've been looking at several different prepositions from the book of Daniel. We've talked about standing up and standing out and uh, standing on and standing in. Today we're going to talk about the preposition through. How do we as believers stand through the fire um, in life? I read a heartbreaking story this week out of a book by Philip Yancey. He wrote a true story about an athlete named Brian Sternberg. Uh, it was a national acclaimed track star and he was perhaps the best pole vaulter the world has ever seen. He was, uh, had been undefeated since he was 17 years old. He had set repeated world records. The guy was just incredible. But on July 2nd, 1963, while practicing on a trampoline in preparation for the Olympics, Brian uh, landed on his neck and was paralyzed immediately, um, completely par- paralyzed. Years later, um, Brian, Brian was a, a, a great Christian. Um, he lost movement in his arms and legs, but man, his faith was put to a test. He had to stand through the fire, and he leaned on God. And uh, years later, um, he was interviewed by Look Magazine. I have the quote that he put um, in that magazine. This is what he said. Having faith is a necessary step toward one of two things. Being healed is one of them. Peace of mind, if healing doesn't come, is the other, and either one will suffice. Now, as I, I read that statement, I think it's one of the greatest statements of faith that anybody could ever speak, especially someone that, uh, you know, is paralyzed, an athlete paralyzed, uh, for the rest of his life. Now, what shocked me about the article is, in Philip Yancey's book, Philip Yancey went there 10, later, 10 years later, um, and interviewed Brian, and he said when he entered his house, the house was dark, there were no crosses on the wall, there were no Bibles in the home, Brian had totally left and departed the Christian faith. And Philip went in and sat down with him, Philip Yancey's a popular Christian writer, and he said, Brian, what happened? And he learned something tragic, somewhere in Brian's life, and Brian's history, some well-meaning Christian came into his life and convinced him that God doesn't just love him, um, as a, as a paralyzed person, but that God actually wanted to heal him. And so Brian began to pray, God heal me, God heal me, God heal me. And Brian prayed for about 10 years, and the, the Christians, well-meaning Christians in his life, the denominational church he was going to said, if you can just muster enough faith, then God will heal you. And what happened somewhere along Brian's life, he stopped believing in that first step. He stopped believing that, or the second step, he, he believed that being healed was one of them, but he stopped believing that peace of mind, if healing doesn't come, was also a miracle of God. He believed that healing was the only way to victory. And, you know, as I, as I read that story, man, it just spoke to me, because so many times we as believers think there's only one thing to do when we're in a fire. And what is that? What do you want to do when you get in the fire? Get out, right? We think there's only one thing that, man, when we're in a test in our life, we're in a trial in our life, when we're in a fire in our life, we just want out. That's just plain, simple 
truth. Um, nobody, I mean, you run a bathwater, and how many all of us have done this at some point? You run the hot water, and man, you're ready, and you just jump right in with your feet, and you find out, instead of being the right temperature, that water is about a thousand degrees. And so you just say, man, I'm just going to sit down in this dude. Right? What do you do? You get out. As soon as your big toe hits that water, you get out and you go, ooh, is he okay? You know, I burn him because uh, that water's hot. I don't know how many times, I man, um, I've done that. I just turn water on and golly, uh, you went out. And that's how hot things are. And so the image that we're going to look at, not an image, it's a real deal, a fire today. I want you to see that most Christians' response is to get out of the fire. But maybe a deeper faith you'll see today is one that trusts God through the fire. Um, and, and we're going to read, I want to read a text in First Peter Chapter 1, verse 7. I know it's not what I'm going to preach today, but I want to see, I want you to read this verse with your heart and your eyes open, and we're going to read it again at the end of our story today. Um, and I want you to see what the New Testament has to say about a fire that we're going to read in the Old Testament. If you would, First Peter 1, 7. Let's stand this morning as we read God's Word together. You just follow along with me. First Peter 1, verse 7. I'm going to start... Um, Kind of there, uh, well, at verse 6, actually, is where I'm going to start. This is what Peter says. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, before you sit down, I want you to repeat this key thought with me. A faith that is tested, everybody say, a faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. Okay, I'm going to start you off. You say the whole thing. Ready? One, two, three. All right, everybody have a seat. When you get set, settled down, get your pen out and write that down. A faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. Um, a faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. You know, we're going to look today at three teenage boys, probably 14, 15 years of age, um, named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Earlier um, in our story, you would have learned that their actual names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which were names honoring Yahweh their God. And of course, the Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon changed their names to pagan names, tried to change the food they ate, tried to change the way that they lived, and today he's going to try to change what they worship. Um, they're going to uh, end up being uh, standing in front of a giant statue, um, an image of King Nebuchadnezzar. It was 90 feet tall, 30 yards straight up in the air, um, and 9 feet wide. And he's going to say to every government leader and every advisor and every judge and every magistrate and every person in his kingdom, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 4 through 6, if you want to turn there now, he's going to shout out, everybody has to worship this idol. I'm going to start in verse 5 this morning of Daniel chapter 3. This is what he says. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Then he says in verse 6, anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Now, 
If you read verses 12 through 15, what you learn is when the music plays, everyone in the kingdom, you know what they do? They bow down. Everyone in the kingdom bows low, except for three teenage boys who continue to stand. Um, because in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this fire, their faith is tested. And a faith that is tested can be what? can be trusted. Uh, I want to keep coming back to that. One of my favorite movies um, still today is a movie called Ghosts in the Darkness. Now, I love to hunt. I love animals. And uh, man, by far, my favorite animal, well, I have two, and they're quite opposites. But number one, um, I love lions. Man, if you've ever been to the Abilene Zoo, is it Abilene Zoo? Waco. Waco Zoo. Waco Zoo. They have lion lion, uh, exhibit there. And if you get there early in the morning, you can get up one, you can get nose to nose with the lion, and that dude will look at you. But early in the morning, the really cool thing, we've been there twice when he's done that, that lion begins to roar. And I love that lion because uh, a lion is a biblical picture. You see all the way through of the lion of Judah, and you know the lion that's about to roar. Revelation talks about the lion roaring. And man, if you've never heard a lion roar, it is an awesome, awesome feeling to hear that sound. Now, my wife's laughing because my second favorite animal is the giant turtle, uh, and they're about as opposite of the lion as you could be, but uh, uh, I can sit and watch them forever, but there's just something about a lion. Well, this movie, Ghost in the Darkness, is about two professional hunters that are hired in, in the 1800s, a true story that happened in Kenya in the 1800s, two or three man-eating lions emerge and are, are killing these uh, men trying to build a train rail, a bridge and a train rail uh, in, into Kenya. But Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas played the two, played the two hunters in the movie. And uh, at one point in the movie, um, I think it's Val Kilmer, he borrows a rifle from another man. It's a large rifle. And he says, here, use my gun. And he takes it in to hunt these lions. And if you remember that movie, um, at some point this lion is charging him from, from a distance. And he has this rifle. And he takes aim with the rifle. And he pulls the trigger. And the rifle goes click. And he pulls uh, the hammer back again, and he takes aim with the rifle, and he pulls the trigger, and the rifle goes click. And by this time, the lion's getting closer, and man, it's just about to eat him alive. And Michael Douglas comes out of nowhere uh, with his gun and shoots this lion right as it falls on Val Kilmer, um, and they kill one of the lions. Now, this is my point in telling you that story. A faith that is tested, what? Can be trusted. I want you to remember that because Michael Douglas said you are crazy to bring an untested gun, right, to a hunt with a lion. And uh, he finds out the gun was borrowed. But listen, many of us walk through life with a faith that we've never allowed God to test. Because every time we're in the fire, we just do what we do when we put our toe in the bathtub. We run and get out. Any uncomfortable situation in life, we just avoid. And we have... Uh, men and women in pulpits even today that are preaching that the point of the gospel is comfort and an easy life. And yet Jesus says, in this world you'll have trouble. Um, He says the exact opposite. So I I just want us to to kind of embrace this idea that if you want a strong faith, what does that faith have to be? Tested, right? How do you know it's a strong faith? And I know some of us are going to kick back on that some because you're like, ooh, am I inviting trouble into my life? Um, but when you read that verse in First Peter, he says, we rejoice, I greatly rejoice um, by being distressed by these various trials because they're going to be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I want to change our mentality, but I want to tell you, uh, first off, three qualities of faith we're going to talk about today that, that as you're navigating through the fire, three qualities of faith that I think will help you. If you're taking notes, write this first one down. Uh, faith obeys God instead of following man. I know that seems so simple from this story, but um, write it down. Faith obeys God instead of following man. How do I know this from this story? I'm not just making this up. This is in this text. How do I know that faith obeys God instead of following man? From the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Music starts to play all around them. The harp, the lyre, the zither, whatever a zither is, I don't even know. Um, But all these instruments start to play, and immediately everybody in Babylon begins to bow down. Except for who? So don't you see how man told everybody to bow down, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down. Why not? Because they knew, God said, you should have no other gods before me. I'm the only God. You don't worship any idol. And so who are they obeying there? God. So it's simple when you preach. I know some people say, well, that's a snazzy, you know, he just makes up these points. I don't make up these points. These points are right here in text. Here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The music plays. Everybody bows down. They don't bow. Verse 16, I love it. King Nebuchadnezzar comes. And, and he's arguing with them basically about, hey guys, you know, you're supposed to bow down. They said, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Man, I love this. Everybody's bowing. Three boys are standing. He comes to them. Verse 16, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. This is the king they're talking to. These are 14-year-old boys, right? 14-year-old boys. They look the king Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful, ruthless king on the face of this planet at that time, and they say, we don't even need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. How cocky would that be? Because you know what, king? We don't even have to give you an answer because this is not between us and you. Who is this between for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Them and God. This is not a matter that you're going to have to you know, talk us out of because here's the deal. Faith obeys God and not man. When it comes to obeying God's word, I want you to notice, they didn't have to pray about it. They didn't have to think about it. They didn't have to fast about it. They didn't have to, uh, you know, uh, call a friend and ask them what they think. They didn't have to put it out on Facebook and tell their whole story and say, guys, what do you think I should do? They didn't weigh, is this comfortable or what's this going to mean for my life? They simply have this predetermined plan that I'm going to obey God and what God says no matter what the cost to me. So king, we don't even have to discuss this matter. God has clearly said we're not to bow to idols. Faith obeys God instead of following man. Now the truth is we live in a world where even Christians find it so easy to kind of explain away our compromise. I've got three ways we do that on the screen. Now there are a lot more ways than this that we do this, but these three I see all the time around us in my own life, and, and I just want you to guard against them. The first thing is we internalize it. When we internalize it, what I mean by that is we say, well, you know what? I don't really want to bow down. My heart doesn't want to bow down. Guys, we, we'll bow down with our legs, but really we'll be singing how great thou art with our hearts. See, see how that can be easily said? We'll just internalize it. It's not what we're doing on the outside that matters. It really matters what we're doing on the inside. So guys, just pretend you're worshiping 
uh, this ridiculous statute but, statue, but really, no matter what our knees are doing, if our hearts aren't in it, it's okay. Now listen, we do this all the time, church. And we do, we just kind of excuse, like, well, I didn't really mean it that way, or if, if you really knew my heart, doesn't matter what I did, action-wise, I really do love God, and that's all that matters. We internalize it. We make it all about our heart and not about our actions. This was actually something that the New Testament believers, John, had to deal with it often uh, in the New Testament. He wrote, uh, actually, First and Second John. That was his whole response because believers then said, well, it doesn't matter who I sleep with, doesn't matter what I eat, doesn't matter what I drink, doesn't matter how I live my life because I'm a Christian and it's my heart that matters. And John had to say, no, 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 no. Because what comes out of your life is what is in your heart. So we, don't, we can't just internalize it. This second thing is to minimize it. And this is big. You know what? I, I know I'm not supposed to compromise. It's uncomfortable. But, you know, all I have to do tomorrow is just simply ask what? For forgiveness. Man, Baptist, we're big on this. We're big on this. We love to say, it's all grace, 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 grace covers a multitude of sins, so I'm just going to keep sinning. Right? We'll just, and it does, don't get me wrong, grace covers all of our sin. But that's what Jesus said, so don't keep on sinning. Grace ought to not give you a license to sin, it ought to give you motivation not to sin, but it's so easy to say, well, I'll just ask God to forgive me. I mean, sin is sin, Right? And, and so we use that as an excuse. Don't be calling. We all sin. We, we'll just ask for forgiveness. It's no big deal. It's, we minimize it. We'll just say, I'm sorry afterwards. You know, if you have plan, a time to plan for forgiveness from your sin, you have time to plan not to sin. If you pre-decided ahead of time that you will ask for forgiveness for your sin, you could have pre-decided not to live in that sin. Right? Uh, don't minimize it. And this third thing, we rationalize it. Oh, we rationalize it. I mean, could they, let me go back to that. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not said, hey guys, we'll bow today, we'll ask forgiveness afterwards. And you know what? We won't be thrown in the fiery furnace. That sounds like a good plan. I mean, they could have done that. The last one, we rationalize. It's just a rational thought. This is really easy. Um, I could do this. You know, guys, if we don't bow down, we're going to be dead. And if we're dead... Who's going to tell all these people in Babylon about Jesus or about God? If we're dead, who's going to, who's going to stand up for Jehovah, the one true God? And tell, so, guys, if we just compromise this one time, um, we'll do it for the glory of God. We'll sin for the glory of God. Isn't it easy to justify? It is easy. I, well, if I share my faith and I stand up at work, people won't like me and then they won't listen to me about Jesus anymore. So I'll compromise, be just like them. That way they'll, they'll, I can witness to them. It's really easy. I mean, we just, we do it all the time. We rationalize. Uh, it'll be okay. They decide ahead. But that's not what happens. Man, uh, they decide ahead of time together. Okay, guys, we're going to honor and obey God. That's all that matters. We're not going to follow what everybody else is doing. And I promise you, if you're a father of Christ and you truly try to follow after God's call for your life, Man, Satan, your spiritual enemy, uh, he's going to give you ample opportunity in this world to compromise what you believe. He's going to make sure you have all sorts of excess. But faith does not focus on the crowd. And faith does not focus on the fire. Faith focuses on the audience of one. 
It focuses on God and God alone. And I just want to be honest with you, church. The sooner you learn to live for an audience of one, the more powerful your impact in this world for Christ will be. Because we live in a time, uh, in a world, or even in a church, where it's really dangerous today to call sin, sin. As a pastor, I, I, I feel these pressures all the time because people will let you tell them what to believe. You will. You guys will let me come up here and say, the Trinity is real, there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and a triune God, and you'll say, amen, I like that. And you'll let me say, hey, you know what, once you're saved, you're always saved, the gospel's true, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Man, people get all sorts of good feelings about that. You'll even let me give you, you know, three points to a walk with Christ, and how to pray, and how to read your Bible, and all that. You'll do all that. But I want to tell you, in America today, when a preacher begins to tell people how to live, Based on God's Word, there is always repercussions. You can tell people what to believe. You can even tell people what to think. But you can't tell people anymore what to live. If you start using the word sin too much, people will start kicking back and say, you don't get to judge me. My sin's no different than someone else's sin. People start to get real uncomfortable. Why are you choosing sins, right? So what pastors do is, I just can't preach on sin anymore. Well, guess what? We stop preaching on sin. What's the reason for the gospel? Forgiveness. And if sin doesn't exist, guess what all the people in the church think that they don't need? Forgiveness. So you have an altar call and say, come be saved from what? Your goodness. (laughs) Right? And that's what we have going on in the world today. We, We don't use that word anymore because... We don't want to offend. And we have to be so careful because people will say, it's the heart that matters after all, right? So if you really love God and love Jesus, but don't ever go to church because of a football game, it's okay because your heart's in the right place. And after all, sin is just sin. What's the difference? We will just ask forgiveness afterwards, and we can live how we want. And come on, if we really stand up to sin as the church of Jesus Christ, won't that scare people away? I just use all three rationalizations in one sentence. See how that works? So easy. But it's counter to the gospel. But we're so evident or so adamant on this because we don't like fire. We don't like standing in the fire. But faith obeys God and not man. It doesn't listen to the comments of the consensus. It doesn't take a majority vote. We obey God and we obey God alone. Period. The second thing, write this down. Faith doesn't just obey God. It obeys in spite of what it sees. Daniel chapter 3, verse 17. It it obeys in spite of what it sees. This is what they say to the king, verse 17, Daniel 3. If we are thrown in the blazing fire, the God whom we serve is able to save us. Then they go on. And he will rescue us from your power, your majesty. No matter what I see... No matter what I believe about that fire, no matter how hot it is, I believe, we believe, these three boys say, that God is able to save us. Man, I just want us to take, we're not going to take the step, I know you all know the next step that they say, even if he doesn't. But I really think that we don't struggle with that last step as much as we do this first one. If we believe this first step, man, we would be a whole lot closer to the faith that God wants us to have. Because no matter what the circumstances look like in your world, we believe that, like for some of you, you may have left the doctor's office with a diagnosis that has absolutely rocked your world. 
You may have a marriage that's just failing and hurting. You may be financially flat broke and have no way out. Um, maybe you're a parent and your kid keeps making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and you just don't know what to do. And this first part, this even if thing, like even if he doesn't, we'll talk about it in a minute. But what most of us are having a problem with first is just believing that God can. Right? Believing that God can is where the faith comes from. Believing that he will is where the faith comes from. Knowing that he's good even if he doesn't, that's a result of these first two steps. When you believe absolutely that God can, and you believe that he will, which is a statement of God's goodness, then that even if, you'll understand he's sovereign and he'll take care of you no matter what. I want you to see there's a gigantic difference here. They say we believe he is able What do we do? I see two things in this verse. First, I see a belief that God can. I think that's huge. Whatever your circumstances, whatever's going on in your life this morning, I want you to hear God speak to your heart today. And he's simply saying, I can. I can. And the world and and your flesh is kicking back on that going, no, 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 God, you don't understand my situation. See, it's a problem. Already we said, well, God, you're not sovereign. You're not big enough. You're not omnipotent. You don't understand just how bad it is. So before I take you to the even if statement, I want you to grasp this I can statement. God can. God can heal you. Now, I don't care how sick you are. God can heal you. That person that you're thinking of that you've been praying for, um, for healing, I, mean, I did this little exercise last night, and I thought, let me think of the sickest person. My, you know, and I mean, went, God can't do No, he's not going to do that. Because, see, we have a problem with this first part. So, as a church, I just want us to exercise that faith a little bit. God can. Everybody say, God can. There's no circumstance in your life or anyone else's life that God can't change if he chooses to. God can. Did you know it's possible that God saved the entire world in this instant. Huh. We're like, who? We can't even muster enough faith to realize God can. And that's why when pastors get up here and say, oh, the, the big thrust of this sermon is that God says, even, or they say, even if he doesn't, we'll still worship him. Well, see, the problem is we have to believe this first step before we can get to the third step. God can. God can save your marriage. God can rescue you financially. God can make your child the next Billy Graham. Now some of you parents are going, no, you don't know my kid. God can. God can. That's the faith that these guys have. They say God can deliver us. We can be thrown into a burning, raging fire, and yet God can. Can uh, Some of us just need to leave here with that statement. You don't need to listen to anything else I say today. You just need to leave here believing. You know what? God can. Now, we're going to get a little deeper in a second. But first, we have to trust God's ability. There's nothing our God cannot do. Faith starts there. It doesn't end there. It starts there. We not only believe that God can, then they take the next step. O King, we believe that God will. He's not only able, but God is willing. That's not trusting God's ability alone. That's also trusting the heart of God that He's going to do what is best for us. Now, there's some of you that are stuck there. 
You don't think God necessarily has your good in mind and, and your, your, uh, you know, what's best for you in mind. Now, there's a difference in God having our comfort in mind, right? God doesn't have your comfort in mind. But he does want good for us. Sometimes we have a hard deal with that. Man, that's hard. God, do you really love me? That's the question. Do you really love me? Are you really a good God? Because we as Baptists, we have this statement. Man, we say it all the time. Like I say something and you say something. Like it just rolls off our tongue. If I say God is good, you say. And I say it all the time. Okay, but we're good at saying that. But do we really believe God is good all the time? Like if coronavirus, and I'm not stoking fear. I think the media is just blowing this flu out of proportion. But if the coronavirus is... Let's say it's a, a lot worse. Let's say we're talking about a terrible disease that kills almost everyone touch and it's sweeping the face of the globe. Because listen, a faith that is tested is a faith that is trusted, right? That can be trusted. Let's say it really is as bad or a thousand times worse than anything the news has ever said and it's sweeping the globe and people are dying forever. Is God still good? All the time. And all the time, see, it's easy to say, but it's really hard to believe when life doesn't look that way. They say God is able, He can, and He's willing because He's good. He's not just able, He's willing, He's good. He wants what is best for us. See, some of us have no problem believing that because your faith has never been tested. Um, you know, it's easy for us to say that. I'll never forget standing by a casket of a 12-year-old girl. I was in college. And her mama was there. And there's this casket in this greeting room of a funeral home there in Meeker, Oklahoma. And the mom is standing beside her little daughter who's in the casket. And her mom is holding her daughter's hand. Like this. And I walked in and I, I was, man, I was just blown away because here is Rhonda and here is her daughter in this casket. And I'm thinking, what in the world? Why is, how is this mom even standing? How, just a, it was immediate, just an aneurysm, something crazy that doesn't happen. Took her little 12, 13 year old daughter. I'll never forget. I walk in this funeral home and I'm thinking, I've got to pray for her. I've got to just go in and give her a hug. And man, I'm just beat up. I'm upset. I'm mad at God about it. This cute girl. Uh, notice she came to the youth center. Just a sweet little girl. And man, I, I walk into this room and I'm expecting just a wailing mom. And her mom is there holding her dead daughter's hand. And I'll never forget the faith of that woman. She said to every person that came to pay their respect, she said, man, God is good and death is not the end. And she's holding her daughter like she's there in that casket that moment. And I thought, this isn't healthy. But then I realized, she said, Daniel, I walked with my daughter through life and I'm walking with her through death. And I'll walk with her again in eternity. I, it blew me away. I just... And every person that came to that casket, she would say, God is good. And I left there going, God, why'd you... I just don't understand. 
I just don't understand. Because I had a hard time believing, how God are you good? And yet this mom, her faith had been tested. And a faith that is tested can be trusted. It was deeper than my faith had been. Our faith, God uh, says that God is with us and our faith believes that God is good no matter what we see. And that's why we need this second point so desperately. God is not confined to the things that we see. Make no mistake about it. The things that God put in your heart to believe for, the fires you're walking through in life, the prayers you're praying, um, the path that God has you on, it may be very unlike what you think, or it may end very unlike what you expect. He might not do what you think he's going to do. It might not look like what you thought it would look like, but here's the deal. That's why he's God and you are not. And that really leads us uh, to the hardest question in all this. What if God doesn't do what you're believing for him to do? And, and that's the, the, the point of really every sermon I've ever heard on this text. Every song ever written on this text. There's a big one out right now. I think by Mercy Me that's called Even If. Well, what if God doesn't? What if God doesn't? What if God doesn't? Well, if you believe these first two, I believe that a faith that is tested can be trusted. If you believe that God can first, and you believe in the goodness of God and the heart of God, you'll have no problem with this third point. See, the people that walk away with the even if he doesn't, the problem is they didn't believe the first two. They had a problem with the first two. But these three, they say, you know what? Whatever happens, even if, look at verse 18. Uh, King, we think he will. Or we know he can. And he's going to be willing to. But even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. Third point, faithful obedience is our responsibility, but the outcome is God's. Faith obeys and leaves the outcome to God. Even if he doesn't, we want to make it very clear to you, this is what they say, your majesty. We will never serve your gods or worship that gold statue that you have set up. We will never. It's in the imperative in the Hebrew language. A lot of translations don't show it that way. We will never serve your God or worship the gold statue you have set up. We'll never do it because we're going to do what is right before God and we're going to trust Him with the out- outcome. Now listen, it's super easy for us to read this story and say, well, duh, of course they will because we know the outcome. We know that God is going to save them in the fire. But these three boys are about to be thrown into a fire. And I don't know about you, but 100% of the time when I have thrown anything into the fire, you know what has happened to it? It's burned up. I imagine that was their experience also. They knew what fire did. There had never been an exception to that probably ever in their life. And even worse, this time in response, they, he doesn't like it because they say, we will never, never. And the king says, oh, you won't? Okay, so heat the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been. He orders that the strongest soldiers would tie their hands and throw them into the furnace. The fire is so hot, the Bible actually says that when the soldiers came to throw them in, the soldiers themselves died instantly. 
That's a cool just little... Not in the furnace, just on the outside of it from the heat. That's how hot it was. And so seemingly, these three boys get thrown into their death. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished as he rose in haste and spoke. That means he jumped up. He says to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said, True, O king, look, he answered, We see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, this isn't in the New Testament. This is not in Acts or you know, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. This is in a, the Old Testament book of Daniel. And here in the fire is Jesus, the Son of Man himself, standing in the fire of the Old Testament. Now, listen to me. Two things that I want to point out that you may have never heard before about this text. And we're going to be done. One thing I want you to know, God will show you his power in all kinds of different ways in your life. I believe that. Over the course of your life, you'll see God's power demonstrated in all sorts of different ways. But you will know his presence, the tangible reality of the presence of Jesus Christ, best when you're in a fire. Do we not see that in this text? Jesus didn't stand beside them visibly outside the fire or in the prison cell, but the second they were thrown into the fire, there he was with them. Some of you need to hear that. Jesus shows up in the comfort of life, don't get me wrong, but listen, he is especially present in the fire. I don't love difficulty, I don't search out pain, I don't encourage you to, but I can tell you, and I mean this, I'm not just preaching, I'm speaking from my heart. Every moment of giant difficulty in my life has been a blessing because those were the times that I felt the presence of Jesus the closest. Those are the times that have formed me and made me into the man of God that I am today. And even the pastor that I am today and the husband and the father that I am today. It wasn't the comfortable times. Uh, Those were great, but it was the fires of life that refined me and that grew me, that pressed me closer to Jesus. And I wouldn't trade all those fires for all the comfort in the world because a faith that is tested can what? can be trusted. Faith's never tested. We really don't know what we have until it's tested. And I look at those times in my life where my faith was tested and it grew. And sometimes, sometimes it did, it struggled. And other times it blossomed. And now, because of those fires in my life where Jesus stood beside and walked with us, man, I'm stronger than I would have ever been without Him. Watch what happens, old Neb. Verse 24, old Neb, I love this. Second thing, and we're going to go home. We threw three boys in. Three bound boys is what the text says. Now, your Bibles may say it a thousand different ways, but in verse 24, it clearly says, we're not three men we cast who were bound in the midst of the fire. So these men went in the fire how? Bound. Man, I love this. I was in the kitchen last night and I really felt God spoke this to me. Sitting in my kitchen, sitting on my wife and I started talking to my cell phone. I said, Siri, make a note. And my wife said, who are you talking to? Said, sermon. I got the last point. It's right here. We threw three boys in. Three bound boys went into the fire. But now we see four men. Notice in verse 24, how it describes them. 
Look, I see four men, what? Verse 24. What kind of men? Unbound men. New American Standard will say loosed men. We threw three bound men into the fire, and now we see four what? Unbound men. I just want you to see this. In looking at this text, there was something that actually burned. The ropes. The ropes. The fire burned the very thing that bound them in life. I mean, that's good preaching. I don't care how you guys are responding. I know it's spring break. That's good stuff. The fire burned the thing that bound them. I don't know what's binding you in life, but I'm going to tell you comfort is probably not going to get rid of it. But the fire will. The fire will. Because Jesus is going to be with you in the fire. Man, I don't know why that, why is that relevant? Because some of you are facing a fire right now, and some are big and some are small. And, you know, I, I really believe all of us in some areas of our lives can look and go, yeah, I have a fire burning here. This is uncomfortable. And, and we just want out. But I just want you to change your perspective just a little bit. And I just want you to consider, man, how am I going to come out of this fire more free than I went into it? The Bible says they were loosed. The fire burned the very thing that bound them. Man, I, I could propose that perhaps even as we just saw in this story that the very thing you want God to remove from you in the fire is the very thing that God is going to use the fire to set you free from. Maybe it's a sickness in your life. Maybe you're facing the most excruciating trial of your life and you beg for God to remove it from you and yet you're still sick and yet you pray to God more and you seek God more and while you're in the fire physically, man, all at once your spirit is set free in a way that it's never been set free before because you find Jesus closer than ever. And the very thing you ask God to take away was the very thing that God used to set you free. Maybe your children, they've walked away from God, but you pray for them. You go to church more and you seek God harder than you've ever sought God. And even though you're in the fire, you're standing strong. And don't minimize, by the way, what the presence of God and the circumstances of your hurt will accomplish as you press into Jesus. And maybe your kids see that. And they say, you know what? Mom and dad are more real than they've ever been before. There's something about their life that, man, it's changing me. And maybe the very thing that was so uncomfortable to you and so um, that you hated so bad and you ask God, God, take me out of the fire. Maybe it's that fire that ends up burning the very thing that's binding your life. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar says this. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, when God shows up and you're hurt, the world watches. God shows up in your fire, the world watches. And God will be glorified. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, verse 28, and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands. They were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their God. We're going to end with 1 Peter 1.7 again. I want you to hear it in light of this text. 
First Peter 1 Peter 1.7. You can open your Bibles there. You can just, I'll read it to you. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what their fire ended up meaning? God was glorified as they obeyed him and no one else. I don't know where you are in your life, but I just want to challenge you this morning. Fires come to us all. Heard a pastor say you're either in a fire. You've been in a fire, you're in a fire, you're going to be in a fire. That's good news. But listen, the fires and trials of life will produce in you something that comfort never can. And it may just be the fire in your life that Jesus draws closer than He's ever been to you before. And it may just be in that fire that the very thing that bounds you is burned to bits and you're set free. Maybe you're here this morning you're not a Christian and you're bound in sin and you're scared of coming down an aisle and putting your faith in Jesus and I understand it. It's intimidating. But it's simple. You do what God says and not what man says. And you find out that the uncomfortable feeling of giving your heart and life and, and in front of people, especially to Christ, is the very thing that as you put in your faith in Christ that sets you free from the sin that binds you. If that's you this morning, I'm going to be down front. You come and uh, walk down this aisle as we sing and you make a decision for Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word today. And Lord, as I say these words, uh, Father, it's even troubling to my own heart to speak them, but Father, I pray that you just give us the faith to mean them. Father, the fires in our lives are a blessing. And Father, as Peter says, we rejoice because of them. We rejoice in the midst of them. Because Father, it's in the fire that we find you. It's in the fire that our our ropes that bind us are burned to bits. Father, we know You can. We trust Your power completely. Father, we know You will. We trust Your goodness. We know You love us. You proved that at the cross of Calvary. And Father, believing those two things, it's, it's so easy to say, God, and even if You don't, we know it's for your glory. It's for your perfect plan. So Father, we just say, be glorified through the fires in our lives. Be glorified through the uncomfortable places in our lives. Father, even if it's death, Father, I pray that you'd be glorified by everything we do as we stand obedient to you. But our predetermined decision today as a church is the same thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prayed thousands of years ago. We will still not bow to any God but you and you alone. Bring the fire. Bring the fire to purify us, to test us, to grow us, and to free us. But Father, we will still only bow to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand, let's worship together. If you have a decision to make, you come.